We envision a world where finding you like, uh, finding wines you like is as easy as finding movies you like on Netflix. We're bringing about this um, world through a recommendations algorithm that matches wines to your taste and an operational setup that delivers these wines to your door. So the thing about this vision, right, is that it was very detailed. I had not told you anything about my startup. Um, this was one that I started in 2011, sold in 2014. But not having told you anything about that startup, you knew exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it. And that is a good product vision. Hi there, guys, and thank you for joining the podcast again. It's always a privilege to host you as well as the best international talent. So thank you for pushing play. Now, in this episode of the Map Round Show, powered by SMERocketfield.com, we're going to be talking about this idea of vision-driven products. Now, Radhika Dat is an entrepreneur and product leader who has participated in four acquisitions from two companies which she has founded. Uh, she is currently advisor on product thinking to the Monetary Authority of Singapore, Singapore's financial regulator and central bank. She also teaches entrepreneurship and innovation at Northeastern's Demora McKim School of Business, and she is an advisor to several startups, as you can imagine. Now, she has written this book, Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset for Innovating smarter and her point of view is quite frankly innovative in and of itself there's a lot that has been written about product development you know the lean agile method waterfall there's so much information about this space and what she's done really well uh, and what i find really refreshing is that she's come up with a new perspective on vision driven products so her idea is that iteration rules most product development life cycles but it isn't enough to produce dramatic results now her book radical product thinking presents to you and to uh, her audience around the world a systematic methodology for building visionary game-changing products. Now, if you can succeed at doing that, you're going to have a fantastic business. We talk about uh, this idea of having a clear vision or strategy for your products. Otherwise, they can quickly become bloated, fragmented, and driven by what she calls irrelevant metrics. And according to Radhika, she also says that they can catch product diseases that can kill innovation and create collateral damage for users and the world around us. A really powerful idea. We also get into RPT or radical product thinking, which gives organizations a repeatable model for building world-changing products. We talk about how do you become a vision-led founder or product expert instead of a iteration-led uh, founder entrepreneur and we talk about the roadmap for building vision-led products from establishing your vision strategy prioritization execution measurement and culture to develop a clear process that really can translate your vision into reality and if you haven't yet done so guys why don't you join the smerocketfield.com community it is free when you register you'll be given 10 fuel tokens fuel tokens can be used to access the world's largest prospecting engine and you can use those fuel tokens to access the customer contacts that you need to make that all important sale and why not introduce yourself and your business to our global community on the welcome wall we'd love to meet you so without further ado into radica dat Hey guys, welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Map Round Show powered by smerocketfield.com. Today we are joined all the way from Boston, from Asafa apparently, uh, and her name is Radhika Dat. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. 
Yeah. And uh, I'm actually especially excited because I'm a South African citizen. Uh, is that cool? That's exactly right. So, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be really cool to get into all the detail around what, around what we're going to talk about today. Uh, the least of which is that you've written a really amazing book uh, called Radical Product Thinking, The New Mindset for Innovating Smarter. And uh, as I was saying to you before we went live, uh, we're, as a company and as a team, we're very much on our product train at the moment and will be for the rest of time, I'm sure. So uh, I think a lot of what you have to say is really, really relevant to startup founders, e-commerce companies, SaaS companies, things like that. So lots to, to kind of get into. I've also been looking at uh, you know your bio. You've just done some amazing, amazing things. So uh, really, really keen to to get your story on record. So uh, for those of our listeners and uh, viewers out there, uh, Radhika, why don't you give us the elevator pitch? Like, where does the story begin? Set it up for us. It begins with my um, experiences having built products in so many different industries, having been an entrepreneur and made mistakes along the way. Uh, what I realized is, you know, in building products, it's so easy to have your vision become disconnected from what you're actually doing in your everyday work. And when that happens, you run into what I call product diseases. Um, and having worked in many different industries, and in fact, I've never held two consecutive jobs in the same industry. So I've worked in telecom, media and entertainment, broadcast, uh, even wine, by the way. Um, and across all of these industries, I found these same product diseases. And so the way the book started out was with this burning question. Is it that there are just a few, you know, supernatural leaders who are just able to know exactly what to build, to have a clear vision, and they're the ones who build these world-changing products? Or can each of us learn how to build these world-changing products systematically? And so that was the burning question and how it all started out. Um, and over time, I've learned to build successful products through those hard lessons. Um, and, and my effort in working on this book was to translate those hard lessons into practical tools that people can use. Um, and in terms of those hard lessons, you know, I mentioned I started out as an entrepreneur um, my background is that I uh, graduated from MIT back in 2000 and, um, you know, started my first startup while I was still in college. Um, that startup was, we were too early to market, uh, but we built what you would think of as the uh, early version of Siri uh, so that you can interact with your um, phone using voice as well as text. Um, eventually, the company was sold to Scansoft, which is now Nuance, but we did not make a lot of money. It was not life-changing for me. Mm. Um, and, you know, thinking about like later on, um, it got to a point where, you know, more recently, uh, the companies that were bought out were bought out because of the product that I built. And so there's that satisfaction in seeing kind of my own growth in learning how to build our products that, um, that, that you can see make a difference to the end users and are successful. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, this today I was, um, you know, scrolling across Instagram and Mab's gone and subscribed. My producer has gone on and subscribed me to a whole bunch of people. So I don't, so, <laughs> I don't manage my own social accounts. Um, and one of them, I can't remember what it was, but anyway, I saw like Jack Moss, the founder of um, Alibaba is on there. So obviously, you know, one of the world's richest men, great story, this kind of stuff. Um, and he was like, don't be the best, be first. 
and I was like, hmm, that's quite interesting. And it's something, you know, you've said it, so now I have to kind of ask, well, you said you were too early. Um, and it's quite an interesting con- you know, context to explore if you are a, a startup founder and you're trying to build something. Because for me, I always look at the market and go, okay, well, who's trying to solve the same problem and what does it look like, et cetera. And I, it's, it's getting harder and harder now to be too early like way before anybody else. There's usually someone out there that's, you know, got that white space already. Um, And then there's this old adage around, you know, first loser or first mover (laughs) advantage, you know, Uh, and there's, um, and there's two schools of thought. So, I mean, obviously you've, you've been too early, quote unquote, and you've not written this book on, you know, how to iterate fast. Uh, So what is your point of view now on, whether it's is it a good or a bad thing to be too early and how early is too early and you know when is early enough stay with us we'll be right back hey there i know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience you sometimes get stuck don't you well if you're like me being stuck sucks but what if you could access the minds of over 850 ceos who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second well the good news is you can literally do that today what my team have built is matt brown ai it is trained on all the interviews over 850 of them that i've done to date all my books all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the matt brown show and you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mapbrownshow.com and at the top, you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up. It's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. Yeah, I think the key to not being too early is figuring out whether the problem that you're setting out to solve actually exists. So to give you this example from, you know, back in 2000, when we were uh, saying, well, it's really hard for someone to interact with their device using voice and text. This was in the context of, you know, oh, the world is moving to 3G, where, you know, this was, you know, way back when, if you can remember, where your phones weren't, you know, as big as your palm and, uh, you know, where you can interact with everything with uh, a keyboard so easily, right? There wasn't such a big screen. You had to use those little buttons to press, you know, four times to be able to type a letter or something like that, right? Um, that's the kind of world we were talking about. And we were saying, well, on that screen, it's hard to interact with your device using voice and text. We were too early to the market because nobody was even trying to do that at the time. Most people didn't have access to 3G. And there was no point getting access to 3G when your devices were like that. The technology just wasn't far enough along. Nobody had that real pain. Like there wasn't a large number of people who said, I really want to interact with my device using text. I just wish I could use voice recognition to be able to do that. That just wasn't happening, right? So what happens when we're too early is where we realize, oh, we can build this amazing technology. This solution is fantastic. Let's go build this, right? Um, And this is, if I think about our vision back then, as a startup, our vision was to revolutionize uh, the wireless space. 
Right? And that is the kind of big, broad vision that we are taught we should have to revolutionize something or to reinvent something. Um, and one of my biggest lessons is that's not a good vision. You have to have a detailed vision for what's the problem you're setting out to solve. And in fact, you know you have a good vision if you're able to articulate such a problem. And if you take yourself out of that picture, you should be able to look at that vision and say, you know, I want someone to solve that problem, even if it's not me. If that problem is solved in the world, it'll make me happier. Um, and that was not the case for this problem of, of interacting with your device using voice and text at that time. So that's how you know you're too early. Yeah, it's a great, uh, it's a great point that because I think, you know, going back to what I was saying around, there's usually somebody out there that's kind of solved that problem already always looking is solving it in one way. And I, you know, it's, it's, I don't think you should be discouraged, you know, by, uh, by the fact that there could be other competitors solving the problem that you think that you wanted to go out there and solve because you can solve it in a different way. You know what I'm saying? You can, there's, there's so many ways you can add more utility and more value to the customer and in the process solve that problem. Um, and, um, I, I've been reading this book and I had him on the show uh, not too long ago. His name's uh, Jürgen Appello. He's a Dutch guy who lives out in Rotterdam. But he wrote this book, Startup, Scale Up and Screw Up. And he talks to uh, this idea of a product vision. And I want to spend some time with you on, you know, on, on vision, right? So a, a product vision is something that I hadn't heard of before. Um, and I'm busy reading his book. I don't have time to go through all the books prior to this show. <laughs> Otherwise, it'd be like nonstop reading. But, uh, but he was saying that, um, you know, you should articulate your vision at a product level, not at a problem level. Do you know what I'm saying? So that it's like, okay, my customer can now do these things through my, as a, as a, you know, in terms of the, the ability to solve this problem. This is what my product vision looks like in terms of my customer's point of view, not the product, if that makes sense. So um, I'd love to maybe get some fundamentals in play. What does a great product vision look like or what does a great vision look like for a product? Yeah, so I think the, the main thing for me is it has to articulate a, a problem at a really detailed level. So what I mean by that is it has to answer the questions of who, what, why, when, and how. Um, the who means, you know, whose problem are you setting out to solve? Uh, and you can't just say, oh, consumers, or I'm trying to empower all women, right? Like that's just entirely too broad. You have to get really specific so that it's an identifiable group of people whose problem you're trying to solve. The second question is, what problem do they have exactly? Meaning, what are they trying to get done and how are they doing it today? The third question is, why is that unacceptable? Why is the status quo unacceptable? And this goes to what you were just saying earlier, Matt, which is that, you know, even if someone else is solving it, if you cannot answer why their solution is completely unacceptable, maybe there is no reason to build it. But if there's a clear reason that, you know, here's maybe five other competitors that are in the market, but still, this is what is unacceptable about the current, about the status quo, then you have a reason for your product to exist. Mm, the fourth question is, um, what does the world look like when you've solved the problem? Um, and finally, how will you bring about this world? Now, finally, is the time to talk about your particular technology or approach um, so that you can solve this problem. And so, you know, if I were to read out what this vision would sound like, right, and this is for my wine startup, um, I would, it would go as follows. 
Today, when amateur wine drinkers want to find wines that they're likely to like, uh, they have to pick attractive looking wine labels uh, or find wines that are on promotion. Uh, this is unacceptable because uh, it leads to so many disappointments. Uh, we envision a world where finding you like, uh, finding wines you like is as easy as finding movies you like on Netflix. We're bringing about this um, world through a recommendations algorithm that matches wines to your taste and an operational setup that delivers these wines to your door. So the thing about this vision, right, is that it was very detailed. I had not told you anything about my startup. Um, this was one that I started in 2011, sold in 2014. But not having told you anything about that startup, you knew exactly what we were doing and why we were doing it. And that is a good product vision. Hmm. Uh, that's amazing. Um, what what is what is or could you explain to us what vision driven change is all about? Because that's essentially, uh, from from my understanding, uh, is is a large reason behind why you have written this book, Radical Product Thinking. Uh, could you unpack that for us? Yeah. So let me compare, you know, vision driven change versus being iteration led. Um, the problem that I see in how we build products in the startup world is that we're often vision, sorry, we're often iteration led. Um, and what I mean by that is, you know, we've learned over the last decade that the way you build products is try something, put it in the market, test it, see what's working, uh, and then you'll just iterate and refine from there. All the business books that are out there talk about iterating fast. Uh, they emphasize the speed of execution and trying things to be able to discover your vision along the way. And so this is where I say, you know, being iteration-led is like having a fast car. The problem, it's, it's really important to have a fast car. It's helpful to have a fast car, but it does not guarantee that you'll get to your destination. Getting to your destination requires knowing where you're going and how you're going to navigate there. And so that ability to know where you're going and how to navigate there, that's what I call being vision-driven. So being vision-driven means, uh, you know, having... Um, a clear picture of the end state of the world that you want to bring about. And your product is your mechanism to bring that about. And so all of your iterations, this is not to say iterations are bad, like all your iterations, if they're driven by that vision, then that's, that's a good way of building a product. You know, we often think about, oh, I'll just ask my customer for feedback. I'll just ask them what they want and that'll tell me what to build. I describe asking customers what to build as asking directions when you're in your fast car. You know, you can stop and ask for directions, but if you don't know where you're going, those directions are not useful. Um, and so being vision-driven means knowing where you want to go. Then you can stop and ask for directions to see if you're going the right way. It's mm. a really powerful idea that, right? And I, it's a funny thing. You, uh, you know, it's the same thing where you fall into the the process of iterative product development and getting customer feedback to go from MVP to product market fit and, you know, the old startup lean uh, agile methodology. And uh, we don't actually look up and say, well, where are we going? You know? Um, and it's just, it's an important thing because again, there's this, these two schools of thought here. One is if you ask Steve jobs, you know, and I think he's, there's even a quote, he's like, well, <laughs> we didn't ask our customers whether they wanted the iPhone. <laughs> we just built it because we knew it was the best thing out there. Uh, same thing with Henry Ford. It's like, well, if I ask customers what they would want, they would say faster horses. 
I built the car. Um, so there's, you know, these examples. I mean, even Amazon and, you know, e-commerce and books, it's like, well, you're going to sell it online. It's, that was an, like, that was the thing. That was the whole, <laughs> that was the whole category, you know, um, and to get people to do everything on and now it's self-evident. So it's an interesting thing because there's lots of digital adoption tools that um, software companies use to drive that, that customer feedback story. Um, and I love your point around making sure that it's context relevant. So it's like, okay, if we're going to democratize access to funding for small businesses, then the feedback should be around that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Right. And, you know, what you brought up about this point on Steve Jobs that, oh, you know, you can't ask customers what they want. Um, I think that's often kind of misinterpreted a lot. So let me, so one of the things about Steve Jobs is, what he was saying is you cannot ask customers what that end destination is, right? So you cannot ask them, do you want to go there or do you want to go there? Or should I be going here or there, right? That's not what the customer's role is. They cannot tell you where you should be going. Um, what Steve Jobs did, where he does, or where he did ask for feedback was, am I doing this right? Like, am I heading the right way if I want to go there, right? Um, and so, in fact, even though Steve Jobs said, I, you don't ask customers what they want, there, Apple always did a tremendous amount of user research and user testing. Um, that was always a given in building their products to be able to refine and figure out, is this working or not? Like, even their clickety-clickety of their uh, keyboards, that is designed based on an immense amount of user research. Um, so it, it's kind of this false myth that's propagated that I didn't, I don't ask customers what they want. It's just, you don't ask customers for the end destination. Only you can know what is that world you envision. You can only ask customers if you're actually, you know, if, if the way you're going is the right way. Yeah, 100% agree. And uh, it's this idea of, uh, you know, if you give your customer what they want, you'll never give them what they need. You know, so exactly. it's like, yeah, so like, you know, make sure you're asking the right question in the right context. The more I just, you know, to meet with uh, experts such as yourself from around the world, the more I realize like context is literally everything. And we make so many decisions outside of context or the right context, you know. Um, you know, Chris Lockhead, he wrote, is a two-time Amazon uh, number one bestseller. He wrote the book, Play Bigger, amazing book um, around category design. And he's, he believes, he's like, look, if you're going to innovate, right, you cannot accept the premise of the way that the world is. That's not innovation. That's accepting the way things are, putting a digital interface on it or launching a digital product and doing it in a new way. He's like, that's not what true innovators do. It's, I feel like, it's like Steve Jobs and, and Apple with the iPhone, they didn't recreate the Nokia phone or the Samsung Razor, you know what I mean, or the Motorola Razor phone. They, they went out and they created an entirely new category called smartphone, um, and, and they were the first to do it, and that's why they became the kind of category king. But his whole thing is around, like, if you're going to innovate, forget, like, you cannot accept the premise. You can probably build a successful business, but you'll never, like, build a unicorn if you just build the things in, a, in the same thing, just done differently. Do you know what I mean? Um, um, and um, yeah, it's just really interesting around like how you approach this idea of context. Um, and we've done, we do it ourselves. Even today, we're looking, interrogating all the time. Is this really what we want? Is this really what we're going to build? Is this really the problem that we want to solve? I um, mean, there's so many dimensions to that. 
Um, and um, I want to use that context to maybe get into your premise for your book, which is this idea of, you know, radical product thinking, right? So do you accept the premise or do you not? And to what extent do you innovate and find white spaces and all this kind of stuff? Um, so I'd love to ask you, like, what exactly uh, do you mean by radical product thinking? Is it this Apple smartphone sort of example or are there other uh, or is there a different context to what you mean by radical product thinking what does it actually mean yeah and and i love what you um, just talked about which is really being able to rethink your product right Um, this new category creation and my book the premise of it is that to be able to do that you have to have a new mindset and this mindset is you know it's not just that you're trying to improve on the status quo. Um, When you're vision driven and you think about what's the change you want to bring to the world and really you're focusing on that change and that problem that you want to see solved in the world, that's where you can really rethink your product and your product becomes your mechanism to bring about that change. So you're not fixated on how things work. You're not fixated on, well, this is how Motorola Razor solved the problem or how Nokia solved the problem. You're thinking about, you know, what do you envision? Like, oh, wouldn't it be nice if someone can use their phone to um, navigate and find um, the restaurant that they're going to where, you know, you can just talk to your phone and it'll dial your friend's number and so on. Like all of those things, they happened because, um, the the focus was on what's the problem that we're trying to solve and the product became the mechanism to solve that problem. And that's the premise for, you know, what is, how do you do that? How do you craft that mindset, not just in yourself, but also in your whole team? And so the whole book is a set of tools to be able to build that mindset, starting with, you know, how do you envision change? And that's what I talked about, creating this vision statement. And, you know, when I talk about this vision statement, it's not necessarily just a product vision, right? Like this is a vision for the change you want to bring about. And that very last line in that vision statement, that's the only part that actually gets to your product. That's the only line that's saying, oh, and here's, by the way, how my product is bringing about that change, right? That's the starting point. But from there, you translate it into an actionable strategy. Uh, You then translate that into what does that mean for your decision making? Because, you know, for many companies, having a vision and strategy is great, but where things break down is where you're trying to balance your vision and strategy and achieving that with your short-term needs. You need revenues tomorrow. You need to show your investors results. How do you balance the long-term and the short-term? And that's where, you know, this gives you guidance on how do you do that and how do you communicate the right decisions? And then finally, how do you measure what matters so that you know if you're achieving that world that you set out to? Um, And so the book is on the premise of how do you craft this mindset and then gives you practical tools to be able to do that and connect your vision for change all the way to your everyday actions. Yeah, it's uh, just to touch on something you mentioned, which I think is really key. I think if you're going to solve any problem, you really have to care about it. You really have to care about it and have the right motivations around that. So, you know, obviously mindsets and motivation go together, at least in my experience. Um, And like we have SME Rocket Fuel as one product and I have two other businesses. In fact, I have three others kind of one's a million, million and a half US dollars a year and the other ones are pre-revenue. And if I look at 
those group of products and I go, okay, cool. What's my, to, to your point, what is the change you want to bring to the world? And then I say, well, which one of those products are the ones is the one that I would choose? If I, if someone put a gun to me, it's a choose today right now. Uh, it would obviously be SME rocket fuel. So I have a choice in terms of my mindset is to go and solve those other problems continuously. I'll make money, but I w- it won't fulfill me. It won't be the change that I want to bring to the world. Um, and, but then, you know, obviously juxtapose that now with SME rocket fuel, like that is something I, like I could do for many, many, many years, you know? Um, and this is the problem, right? This is also the challenge. Cause you know, you think about like product development, the game, the context is, well, why do you want to build this thing? Like, what do you, why does it actually matter to you first? Uh, and this, and then to your customer, um, and then if you're going to raise capital, and I'd love to get into that with you because you've obviously been part of a number of exits and acquisitions. If you're going to raise capital, like one of the, the things keeps running in my head and I've been meaning to tweet it, but it's like, if you're going to raise money from someone or an investor, make sure they care about se- solving the problem as much as you do. Because then you know you've got a partner, not just a capitalist, you know, who's interested in how much MRR you're going to get. And, you know, for my million dollars, I'm going to get 10, 20 times my money back. That's fine for some people, but you know, it's not the perfect partnership and no money is made equal. Um, what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I so agree with you that, you know, to be able to craft this vision statement and, you know, when I mentioned you have to be able to step back and see that this is a problem that you want to see solved in the world uh, and that it would make you happy to see it solved, even if you're not in the picture. That's the kind of passion that you need as an entrepreneur behind building that product. Um, it, it has to be a problem that you want to see solved in the world. Why is that the case? Because as, as you're well aware, right? As an entrepreneur, um, you have your ups and downs. Um, Things are really hard. You're working so hard thinking about this 24-7. It's just a lot of hard knocks. To get through all of that, you have to have that passion behind it. And it has to be driven by, it's always driven by more than money. Because if you look at about just, you know, how many um, startups fail, um, the, the expected value of your startup and what you're going to make out of it isn't that great, right? You're not, as an entrepreneur, driven by just making money. It has to be based on that sort of passion. Um, but, you know, to touch on what you said about this inspiration um, and, and what's the problem you want to see solved, there's a second reason why I feel like that's really important. Um, if you don't envision the change that you want to build. You're just building products purely to make money, right? You often create what I call digital pollution. Um, And digital pollution is this collateral damage to society that we create through our products, um, where we affect society negatively um, without realizing it. Uh, Or maybe we do realize it, but, you know, we're just very focused on those financial metrics of our products. Um, And again, this is not to minimize financial metrics. We need to build successful products. Otherwise, we can't feed ourselves. You're not going to create innovation, et cetera. But at the same time, we can build successful products that don't have this collateral damage to society. Um, You know, just by way of an example of collateral damage, um, in my book, I talk about five different types of collateral damage, um, five types of uh, digital pollution. 
you know, digital pollution is basically the equivalent of environmental pollution. So the way industrial pollution, industrial boom has created environmental pollution, you know, it's the digital era and the carefree growth in the digital era that's created digital pollution. And so examples of that would be, uh, you know, the misinformation that Facebook creates um, or even Google. Um, another example would be erosion of privacy. Apple's latest uh, feature announcement is an erosion of privacy where they basically scan your phone for uh, a database of um, uh, sexual abuse material, like child sex abuse material. Um, but the problem is still that they're scanning your phone. Today, they're scanning for child sex abuse material. Tomorrow, it can be whatever authoritarian regime uh, says that they should scan for. Um, erosion of privacy is a form of digital pollution because without privacy, you cannot have free speech and therefore you cannot have democracy. So there are five such types of pollution. And when we when we build products without thinking about the change we want to see for the world, we just accidentally create these forms of pollution. That's a very interesting insight that. And just for my audience, are they scanning your WhatsApp, Facebook, or are they scanning what are they scanning? Uh Interesting question there. Okay, we'll talk about WhatsApp as well, but let's just talk about uh, Apple. So if you have any images on your Apple phone, um, they scan for uh, CSAM or child sex abuse material. Uh, they do a hash of uh, all these images and then they compare it to a database of known uh, images. Uh, but the problem is this is a backdoor or like this is a weakening of encryption. You don't have end-to-end -end encryption anymore when they're doing this. Mm. Yeah, I uh, just to maybe give a less hectic example, um, and I think, but I think it's still the same thing. I mean, look, I guess I understand it, both your point and theirs, you know. And as of, I don't know if I don't know if you have kids. Do you have kids? I do, yes. You do, too. yeah. So then, I mean, as parents, you're like, cool, well, <laughs> go scan them phones, but don't scan mine. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Because you want to kind of like protect your kids, right? So I can understand that it's a it's it's one of your liberties to, to have privacy. Um, you know what I mean? So it's such an interesting thing. And oh, there's so much we could get into around, uh, you know, regulation. Because also I don't think like, you know, digital regulators have moved fast enough in many areas to, to kind of keep up. Uh, to in terms of the pace of product innovation and and you know and its and its potential for positive change, but also to take away some of our civil liberty, liberties rather. Um, and uh, maybe I'll give another simple example. So I have been looking for a digital adoption platform. So I've been looking and having lots of demos and stuff like this. Got a proposal with one company who had raised five hundred million US dollars. Right, so this is digital adoption software. Obviously, helps when you log in. It's like the screen goes gray, and then only a certain section lights up, and you get little like you know cue notes and stuff like that. So it's showing you how to do stuff without someone there. Anyway, so they've raised five hundred million dollars. So they sent us a proposal, and it was very expensive. It was like uh, fifteen thousand dollars a month. So I said to them, "Look, this is a great product. We're interested, but we're not a mature SaaS company. We're a startup, so we can't afford $15,000 a month. That is, for us, based on our current commercial models, is landing 1,500 users for the same cost every month. <laughs> so what am I going to choose? Well, I'm going to choose the users. I said, don't you have a cheaper option? 
do you have like maybe, you know, we want to grow with you. So give us like, don't give us the API integration and all this. Just give me like, I want to have a little basic, you know, wizard for my users so I can, I can kind of grow with you. And they were just categorically inflexible. They were like, no, you either buy this or you go. Um, And I'm saying, and I think that's what you were saying. It's, and I think it's because they've taken VC money and they, they, they are completely motivated now by bottom line or top line revenue growth. And so I'm saying if you are a digital adoption software, your mission, your purpose, your product vision is to help SaaS companies. Now you've taken money, your motivations have changed, and actually you're now, I forget the term that you used. Let's see if I can get it here. Um, it's collateral damage, right? I, as, as a business, is suffering from your collateral damage because your motivations now are different. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So I think there are two points that I want to address in what you said. So the first is, you know, you, we were still talking about privacy. Uh, you know, this, by the way, erosion of privacy is always framed in the context of, oh, we just want to protect you. And that's why we're eroding privacy, right? It's always framed in the context because if it's not framed in that context, everyone's going to say, well, I don't want you to erode privacy in that case. Um, and in this particular case, you know, erosion of privacy is not going to help with finding child sex abuse material. The reason is that they very clearly articulate, here's what you do if you don't want your content to be scanned. Don't put it on, um, if you disable the, 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 there's one feature where you can disable uploading it to the cloud or something like that. And, you know, in that case, it's not going to get scanned. It's It's not about protection of children. This is really, um, there's a track record of Apple where Apple has um, compromised Chinese customers, for example, by putting their data on uh, Chinese owned servers um, and also putting the encryption keys on those same uh, servers. So, you know, this is kind of a pattern that we're seeing of erosion of privacy because of governments putting pressure on on asking for backdoors. Um, so that was the that was my issue on privacy and why you know we can't we can't always trust that it's because of protection and therefore give up privacy. Um, the, the other point that you made you know about um, VCs kind of pushing for top line revenues and kind of how that changes the context for startups. Uh, what you're referring to is you know something I, I call this a product disease called narcissist complex. Hmm. What happens is, you know, we get very focused on our own internal goals, what we need, what our business needs for it to succeed and make those top line revenues that we forget about what it is that our customer needs. And so this is why, you know, one of the ways you can overcome this disease is by having that sort of clarity of your vision in terms of what's the change you're trying to bring about for your customer and tying that into your everyday actions and even with you know tying that to your sales negotiations uh yeah absolutely there's another one i want to share i don't know actually what happened you're probably closer to it being stateside but I think there was a whole stink between Apple and Facebook. Uh, and this is to uh, add to your point around just because it, they, they say it's because of privacy, it doesn't mean that it is. And this is another example of that. So uh, Facebook, I think with in the new version, whatever the version number is for the iPhone software, by default, 
it prevents Facebook from uh, using your data at all. So it messes with Facebook's uh, Facebook ad, obviously ad funded business model and its ability to provide hyper targeted ads based on where you are. And da, 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 da. So, um, and it was, it was no, 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 but it's about your privacy. That's Apple's line. And Facebook are like, listen here, dude, you're messing with like, <laughs> like billions of ad revenue just by introducing your product feature. You know what I'm saying? So, uh, and so on one hand, it's, it's about privacy, apparently. And I, you know, I get it. I hate, I hate Facebook and what they're doing in many cases. Um, but also I respect the, what they've built, you know. Um, but uh, absolute power corrupts corrupt, absolutely. No man should have that much power, <laughs> especially Zuckerberg. <laughs> Yeah, you know what you talk, what you mentioned about Facebook and Apple. There was actually something really funny that I was reading where WhatsApp was criticizing Apple for its stance on privacy and, and this new feature that they've uh, added. Right, and I found this really funny because I find WhatsApp to not be that uh, good at privacy, uh, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But it was like the pot kettle calling the kettle black, or the kettle calling the pot black. Right. So what's wrong with WhatsApp and their approach to privacy? Well. WhatsApp says that we encrypt messages end to end, right? But what they don't tell users is that we're storing your metadata. We're storing who you call when. And um, so basically they store who calls whom, right? So imagine it's a journalist and a whistleblower talking. Just the fact that WhatsApp has data to know that uh, a whistleblower called a journalist, that in itself is enough to compromise you if you are that whistleblower, right? It's not about what you said to that journalist necessarily. All you need is metadata. The power of metadata is why Facebook bought WhatsApp. Uh, it's metadata that Facebook doesn't have access to that's off the platform and so, or, or offline, right, on phone conversations. Um, and so, yeah, WhatsApp, by storing metadata, they erode privacy. Apple, by uh, basically weakening end-to-end -end encryption, they're, um, uh, they're eroding privacy. But this is kind of the common theme. So by the way, for your audience, uh, for our listeners, if you want to protect privacy, you have an alternative to both WhatsApp and Apple Messenger, use Signal. This is what uh, Edward Snowden uses. <laughs> yeah, I was just about to ask you that. Uh, about uh, whether you use Signal or not. Um, yeah, like I use it. And it's a funny thing, you know, it, just to switch because it's kind of like, well, you know, how bad is it if they see my metadata and stuff? But no, I've got like friends of mine who'd like off, off Facebook, off WhatsApp, and they're like, screw you, Zuckerberg. My data's private, and that's it. I don't care, you know, and they deleted their Facebook. So it's obviously an early adopter, extreme uh, sort of story. Joe, Reg Joe Rogan uses Signal. He's no longer on WhatsApp, and it's like a whole thing now where, you know, we want to be in control. Um, and it's a funny thing, but just it's, it's the, it works the same way. You basically install the thing, looks up your phone directory, and you can do what you want to do. You can call, you can WhatsApp. I mean, you can send messages, not WhatsApp. Uh, but uh, you can do all the same things you do on WhatsApp. Now, do you think I would just go straight to Signal? And it's a thing. It's like, if, you know, like it's a switching decision in, in my mind as a user. And it's an, also an overlooked thing contextually in digital adoption. So if you want to go out there and you're, you're late to the party, but you want to solve this problem in a new way, if you have a customer and uh, uh, his name is uh, Rand Fishkin, he, I had him on the show years ago, and he told me, look, he, uh, SEO, SEM Rush, I think it is, 
or SEO, Mars, sorry, my bad. Uh, and uh, he said, look, we have a million users on our paying users on our SEO software. And he says, you know what's interesting about that? If we go from version one to 1.1, they don't switch. We have to go from version one to version two before they switch. And I was like, well, why is that? And he goes, and it's the same thing I have with switching from WhatsApp to think it's the same thing. It's not a significantly better jump. Um, and it's the same problem. And he said, the reason is, is that they want it to be significantly better. And I don't think that privacy as a problem is something you can touch. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's, it's an intangible thing. You're exactly right that it is intangible. And for most people, they feel like, oh, you know, I have nothing to hide. If they have my metadata, what's the big deal, right? And so this is why we're kind of like, oh, we we're, we feel more reluctant if there's such uh, an effort for us to make that switch. Uh, but here's the thing, right? The reality is you either have privacy for everyone or for no one, because um Let's let's look at this example of Signal versus WhatsApp. Um, if you are not on Signal, um, you're on WhatsApp. You're still talking to other people. You're still, you know, your metadata may not may not really matter, but a journalist's metadata does matter. So WhatsApp, if they are. If, if you're okay with it, right, they have so many users who are like you, whose metadata they can track. And that um, that just means that somebody who is a journalist, if they want to talk to a lot of these people, maybe they have to be on WhatsApp, or they can be really strict and say, look, I'm only on Signal, right? Um, and their metadata matters. Um, so by a lot, by giving Facebook or WhatsApp this, this um, by giving them Slack and saying, it's fine if you have my metadata, we're kind of saying it's fine if you have this journalist metadata too. We have to take kind of this really hard stance that, no, I don't want you to erode my privacy because this is also eroding others' privacy. Um, that's that's kind of the hard line that we 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 as consumers have to take because Privacy is a responsibility for protecting democracy. It's not just a right. Uh, and that's the piece that you're exactly right. We don't think about it that way, that this is a responsibility, um, that we have to protect journalists and you know those human rights activists. We have to protect their privacy. And this is probably a good you know, uh, connection to uh, you know, radical product design, right? Or thinking in the sense of, you have to be ruthless with your customers' data. And I think in many cases, you know, um, we that even now locally in South Africa, there was this new uh, regulation that's come through called Papia. Jeez, you must should have seen the shit that was going down here, like with everybody panicking about the regulators. It's like, no, you can't send emails and you can't phone me and you have to opt in and stuff. Like every day there was like dozens of emails in my inbox from random companies I used to deal with years ago and they all now want to be compliant you know, um, and it's amazing what happens when you bring regulation to the table. And one of the things we've seen, obviously, around the world is how the regulators have tried to regulate big tech, you know, um, and and not done a good job at it <laughs> at all. Uh, I don't know if you, yeah, go ahead, I'll jump in. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And, you know, regulators have a hard time regulating, especially because so much of this technology is so nascent. We, you know, if let's let's look at environmental pollution and how long that took to have it regulated. Right. Um, So 
uh, if you think about the 1600s, the buildings in London were black because of all the coal that was being burnt. By the 1800s, um, the leading cause of death was air pollution and uh, pulmonary issues because of air pollution. How long do you think it took for laws with teeth to be enacted from the 1600s when they actually saw this pollution? A guess? 200 years. 300 years. <laughs> I, was, I was pretty <laughs> good there. Closer than most people I talk to. Most people are like, oh, maybe 50 years now. 300 years, right? And so... Um, in the case of digital pollution, this is more abstract, just as you pointed out with privacy, right? It's not a tangible thing. It's not like the black air and the smoke that we're seeing. And so it's going to take a long time for regulators to really get their heads around this and start to regulate it. And this is why, you know, coming back to the book, what 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 I think we really need is um organizations often defer responsibility, like Facebook often says this, oh, you know, we want regulars to regulate. Uh, they need to give us guidelines on what we can and can't do. Why do they say that? Because they know that it takes about 300 years, or, or even if it's not 300 years, but just a long time for regulations to come through that have any teeth to them, right? And so in that time, they kind of have free reign. And this is why um, for us to build products, what we really need is a vision for the change we want to bring to the world. Um, what do we envision the end state to be? And we have to build products thinking about that so that, you know, one of the things, um, it, one of the practical tools is about how do you measure whether you're successful? It's not just based on revenues. Yes, revenues is an important element of how you measure uh, success, you know, how much time your users are spending on your site, etc. Yes, all of that is important. But what really determines success is whether you've brought about that change that you envisioned in the first place. That's what you truly measure for to know if you have a successful product. Um, and, and that's where, you know, coming back to the book, if we start out um, by thinking about what's the change we want to bring about, we can systematically bring about that change um, connected to our everyday actions and measure for whether we're actually succeeding in bringing about that change. And we may need to course correct along the way. Um, Let's just contrast it with, you know, what Facebook said their vision was early on. Their vision was to create a world that's open and connected. That sounds like a vision, right? Until you think about it for a moment and you go like, wait a minute, what does open and connected actually mean? Like, what does that world look like? Um, it doesn't really tell you anything. And that's what I argue against. We don't want to do that. We need a detailed problem that we're solving. And what does the end state look like? Yeah, exactly. And again, to your point, there's so much, so much relevance here. I mean, if you talk about measuring the the change that you're introducing into the world, oftentimes we're, we're measuring the wrong things or we're not measuring at all. Um, and, you know, like with SME Rocket Fuel, we, our, our vision is to democratize access to funding slash capital talent and uh, new markets for small businesses around the world. That's our thing. And we have a vision specifically at a product level, which is all about pre precision decision-making for dis for founders and CEOs. Um, and, you know, one of the things obviously is funding and we've been looking at decentralized funding. Um, and I, I want to spend a little bit of time yet because I don't know if you, if you're familiar with it, but decentralized funding for our audience around the world is basically where there's no central you know, decentralized, so it's not, there's no central funder, there's not a bank giving you the loan. 
it's based almost like a cryptocurrency investment. Uh, so that community funds your business and it's decentralized and there's DAOs or decentralized autonomous uh, units, which are self-organizing, self-executing businesses that live on the blockchain. So, I mean, it's just like, oh my God, if you look at like the change in that uh, and if we were to measure the change that we were actually bringing in it for me, the thing, the change that, that really matters is like how many businesses are applying for funding. And it's about 10% of our, every user that registers. So 10 in every hundred apply for a, a fund, a funding uh, vehicle. And that's amazing. Now the decentralized thing that comes into it, it's like, is that the change that you want to measure? The fact that it's decentralized or do you want to measure the fact that businesses are getting access to capital? Do you know what I mean? And I think it's so easy to get romanced by the new shiny, sexy, unregulated crypto, sh- you know, da, 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 cool thing. But, it, you know, it's like, it's almost a distraction. So I could measure the fact that, oh, well, we built this thing on the blockchain, or I could just measure on the on what matters to the to the customer and the change that we want to make to, to SMEs. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. And maybe what you're measuring is not just how many people are, are applying for funding, but maybe uh, with this decentralized approach that maybe more uh, entrepreneurs are getting that funding to be able to start their businesses or something like that, you know, but I agree. Sometimes we're so focused and it goes back to that narcissist complex. Maybe we're excited about crypto and oh, how exciting that, you know, this blockchain and so on is delivering all these cool solutions. Um, But we forget about, well, what difference is that making to the consumer or to the end user? Mm, Yeah. So yeah, just so much truth bombs in this uh, in this conversation. Uh, so um, we've I've, covered so much ground, haven't we? I know, right? It's like my, my producer is going to be a busy boy trying to recycle all this stuff because there's like definite segments here for you, Maverick, if you're listening. Uh, but um, yeah, so I mean, it's it's just really interesting. I mean, just uh, maybe let's a uh, cognizance of time with you, um, Radhika. So, what do you know? Uh, two more questions. What do you know to be true? Uh, about the world of product uh, innovation uh, that most founder CEOs do not? Um, What do I know to be true in terms of how we build products today that we shouldn't be doing? Yeah. What's the truism that you're sitting on that you really need to get off your, your kind of chest at the moment? Ah, you know, um, One big thing is in the product world, we think if we delight customers, we have a successful product or that the path to building a successful product is delighting customers. And I have realized that that is not correct. And I know that sounds counterintuitive, but let me give you an example. Uh, And I talk about this in the book, but um, there was a startup that came to me. Their numbers were looking great. Um, They had, you know, high NPS scores. They had a huge number of daily users who were just ardent fans who would come back to this app every single day. Um, But, you know, in the end, the entrepreneur was still feeling like, you know, it's just not going well. So basically what this entrepreneur was trying to do, he was uh, he was building an app to spread kindness in the world, meaning that, uh, have you heard of the suspended coffee movement where you buy two coffees, you pay for two, but you get one. One is a coffee you're paying forward for someone as a random act of kindness, right? And so he wanted to create an app that spread kindness by getting people to do this random act of coffee, as he called it, for someone. 
Um, and so despite a high number of daily users and great NPS scores, what turned out was nobody was buying someone else a coffee. They were all just there to go get a free coffee. And so, um, and, and so, you know, okay, we use this radical product uh, approach um, because instead of just trying to delight customers and which is why, you know, which is what he was trying to do before. He was trying to delight them by making them happy when they came to the site uh, or to the app, but making them happy just meant giving them more coffee, right? Um, they weren't spreading kindness. So we shifted that model. Um, we changed it so that the app's feature, instead of giving you a free coffee, it would always give you two coffees. One was free for you to drink. The second, you had to gift to someone else. And so by doing that, we taught users the joy of gifting someone a coffee. And it turned out after that, like 27% of people who gave away a free coffee ended up spending their own money on buying someone a coffee. Like they learned to do these random acts of kindness. So my point is, it's not just enough to delight customers through your product. Delighting customers is only a mechanism. Um, you have to build features that are not just about delighting customers, but you have to measure your feature by is it bringing about the change you want to bring. Delighting is a mechanism so that people will come back to your app or come back to your site, but it's not necessarily the end goal. It's just a means. Yeah, it's crazy. It's like Tom's shoes, right? Where you buy one and, you know, one gets donated to it. Sort of a, that it actually gets donated there. <laughs> That's probably why it works. You know, it actually does make a difference. Uh, but people, geez, they'll do anything for uh, people average. <laughs> Most people are average. Oh my gosh. Uh, but um, but look, let's uh, let's wrap this up. Uh, why do you do what you do? Like, why does this matter to you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? <laughs> so, what is my vision for the change I want to bring? Yeah, yeah. There you go. Uh, uh, the change I want to see is that we build vision-driven products. I want people to succeed in, in uh, you know, delivering innovation to the world um, and product diseases get in the way. I want all of us to be able to build vision-driven products and avoid these uh, product diseases that kill innovation. That's the first thing. The second thing is that, um, you know, a lot of business books are written by uh, you know, people who are very Silicon Valley mindset centric. It's all about, you know, how can I be the next unicorn? Um, I want us to think about financial success, but also think about, um, you know, a more global perspective in terms of how we're building great products. What does it mean to build world-changing products that really make the world a little more like the one we want to live in as well? Um, so these are the two things that really drive me. Uh, and which is, by the way, why this uh, toolkit and everything behind the book, it's also available for free from my website, radicalproduct.com. You can just download the free toolkit because I want to make it easy for anyone who wants to create vision-driven change to be able to do that. I'm going there now. I'm getting it up on the screen for everybody. So your book's actually coming out, isn't it? In September. It's coming out on September 28th, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so let me get that up on uh, screen for you. So it is on Amazon, Radical Product Thinking. Uh, you can pre-order it, Kindle paperback. And then uh, let me see, uh, radicalproduct.com. And it's going to be on audiobook soon. Oh, uh, cool. Amazing. Are you going to do your own uh, narration? No, actually, I had a professional narrator do it. And I did it for a reason, actually. 
Um, I, okay, so maybe just a quick reason why I chose, it was vision driven. I could have narrated the book, but here's the thing. I talk about a lot of diversity in my book, diverse examples from around the world uh, of people creating change, um, you know, people of different colors, shapes, sizes, et cetera. Um, and the reason, and, and I wanted not just me as a woman to talk about all these diverse people creating change in the world, um, and so I picked someone who is a British white male to narrate my book um, for that reason. It was it was a vision driven reason. I want someone um, who's different from me talking about diversity and why that's important also in the form of uh, building products. Hmm. So interesting. Well, I wish you all the very best for for your launch. I'm going to share uh, <laughs> I'm going to share the radical product link now with uh, my team because I think it's uh, super relevant for us on this massive product drive at the moment. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to definitely feed back to you, and you know, maybe in the future we'll get you back and you can run one of your workshops to our SME Rocket Fuel members. Sounds wonderful. Uh, this has been so much fun, Matt. Hey there, guys. At smerocketfuel.com, you can access new markets and your ideal customers within seconds from a globally compliant data engine built specifically to help your business grow faster than ever before. And the best part, it's free. Yes, that's right. It is free. Head on over to smerocketfuel.com and sign up for free today so that you can start accelerating your business growth faster than ever before wherever you are with smerocketfuel.com ever wanted to become a best-selling author well i'm in the influence business and i work with business owners and ceos and business leaders to help them scale their influence and we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author sought after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days my team and i have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300 faster and 50 percent less cost than anyone else in north america this system is incredibly efficient one of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.